Welcome to podcast one, four, five from the Wiggly Sofa live in Blakemere, Herefordshire. I'm Heather from Wiggly Wigglers. I'm Richard from Wiggly Wigglers. And I'm Farmer Phil. And that there lay on the floor is Jam from Wiggly Wigglers, our chocolate Labra bubble. Anyway, on this week's show, we've got a bit of a complaint. A bit of an apology <laughs> coming up. Okay. We've got a bit of an interview. Farmer Phil talks to Tim Hovard, our Hereford Archaeology, about a Bronze Age feature that we've got on the farm. Well, not proven yet, but it looks like it. Yeah, he's quite excited. Mm-hmm. And we've got a bit of a Monty cast. It's a bit of a show this week, I'm afraid. Mm, good. <laughs> Are you going to say anything this week? Because if you're not, <laughs> it might be a struggle. <laughs> OK. I'll do, I'll do my best. I'll, I, I shall speak as required. Uh, whilst I understand, <clears throat> Rich, that you are trying not to have any fighting fits in the Wiggly podcast, mm. I might say that your new complete compliance <laughs> is um, pretty steady. OK. <laughs> There's no, I'm trying to find some middle ground, possibly. That's, that's uh, my opinion. That might be the idea. The thing is, Rich, <laughs> I'm a if man you, of street, if you, you know sit that, on so the fence I, too long, there is a likelihood you may just fall off. Yeah, well, that is, that is true, yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's go for Megan's complaint. Right. Megan Lynch is a real big fan of the Wiggly podcast. She loves it. Mm. But she says this. To take a phrase from Richard, not to be disparaging, but <laughs> I just haven't been as turned on by the podcast in a while. I'm having a hard time putting my finger on what it is. My suspicion is that we've had lots of interviews recorded in the field and not so much of the wiggly banter that brings it all to life. My favourite of the recent podcast was Jodie's Farewell. It was neat to hear the stories from the wiggly road shows, etc., I would really like to see the Wiggly team put together a good panel discussion on the rising price of petrol and food and the rising interest, at least in the more forward-thinking areas of the US, perhaps the UK too, in food security. I think FP, Farmerville, is going to have some good points on that subject. Well, I wrote back, I'll put your thoughts to the team and that's what I'm doing right now, live on the show. And I put, perhaps we gone by our sell-by date. <laughs> or maybe we just need a kick up the jacksy. Or perhaps it's just summer. Anyway, she just says back, and I'll, I won't be taking long with your time on this, but she says, hey, let me just clarify. It's not the interviews aren't good. Some of those interviews are made top 10 wiggly podcasts, in my opinion. But how engaging an interview is depends on not only the subject discussed, but on the personalities of the interviewer and the interviewee. When there's connection, it's great. When it's calm, it's informative, but it's just not as kick-ass as the best of the Wiggly podcast. See how much you guys have affected my language? I wrote get on rather than get along. Yet I went to a very American kick-ass at the end. (laughs) I think when you're doing things in studio, they turn out a bit better because the rapport that you, Farmer Phil and Ricardo have is always entertaining. So, in studio, almost always works for me. Field interviews or Skype interviews have more variables. Well, Rich? Well... I don't mind, you <laughs> <he's> say. <saying. Yeah. 
I think that the trouble has well, been that uh, you know. our banter has been so kick-ass of lately it's been unbroadcastable. It doesn't, seem, it doesn't seem like long ago since we had major rows about... What did Michael do with the TB row? I mean, did we go... Yes, we, we if only, if on. only okay. you so knew, Megan. Megan. Can't, have, can't have appreciated that one. So we, we sort of we <laughs> condemned it to the... Uh, if anyone time, noticed but. the quite drastic swipe where Heather says, and that's the end of that, yeah. uh, at the end of last week's, a couple right. of weeks ago show, that's yeah. because at that point we did actually all fall out. <laughs> <laughs> Even the dog fell out with the oh, cat. Michael and Father Phil fell out that day. But we are friends again now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I complimented Michael on his sun hat and, and his new camera, so that all was well after that. Anyway, the thing is, we'll never please all the people all the time, and we love doing the field interviews, but I agree in the sense that it's no good having a bland show, so I think we need to set fire to the whole thing. Uh, and that's why I have asked young Ricardo to bring in his storm kettle. <laughs> is that why? So that's the reason? Yes. Do the fact that you're going camping next week. Now, would you look at the link in there, eh? Now, that yeah. was slick, wasn't oh, it, Rich? Oh, yeah. Seamless. Burn the place down. Fire up, Ricardo. Okay, well, I'm what in the house? <laughs> will it work or not? Oh, yeah, it will work in the house, but I don't think so, because all the smoke and fumes will come straight up into this room and we'll all die of chronic asphyxiation. Well, the background to this is that Karen comes to me and says... How does that storm kettle work? Because customers are phoning us up and saying it's got a hole in the bottom and all the water's going to fall out. Right. And I said, we're going to really? have a wiggly audio <laughs> demo by mm. young Ricardo. Yeah. So please gather your instruments. Well, we've got to go outside to do this, haven't we? So we're going to go up and out. If you open the wood burner, won't the smoke go up the wood burner? I did look at that earlier and thought, well, maybe... <laughs> I could light it, actually, I could light it in here. Yeah. Oh. I'll light it in here. There you are. Okay, Rich, why are you praying at the wood burner? Well, Hev, I'm just going to, uh, because we're doing this demonstration indoors, which I wouldn't <laughs> recommend, don't light a storm kill in your front room. <laughs> we're only doing because, that because it's about to rain. Yeah, well, because your, uh, your wood burner is large enough to accommodate the dimensions of this particularly fabulous specimen that is a storm kettle, I can fit it in here. So what I'm going to do... Did you say... So Karen said that people have rung up to ask how is it possible for something to contain water that has holes in it? Yes, give me the pot, please. All right, so that's full of water now, mind, so don't tip it up. So you look down inside, Rich, yeah. and there's a hole. <laughs> yeah. That's the problem. Okay. That's the chimney. Uh, well, that's the chimney, yeah. <laughs> so, so what happens, it's an ingenious thing, you see. So if you thick, pour the water in there... thick walled, kind of thick walled. Oh, right. So the water's contained around the chimney, in effect. Well, that's your problem, then. That's, the problem, that's then. what people think, look. Yeah, pour the water yeah. in there. Yeah. So you pour the water in here. Put your water in there. Okay. And you put your cork in. But actually, the thing to do is not leave the cork in just before it starts to boil, because otherwise it might, uh, you know, explode or just... Usually it just pops the cork out, but... Wouldn't that just, add uh, excitement to your... <laughs> you might explode the storm <laughs> kettle. And the other, the, other thing, the other thing to remember is don't light the fire and let it boil dry, because it's aluminium and it'll melt. What's the cork away. for, then? To keep the water warm after it's boiled. Oh, OK. And um, also so you can carry it around. Yeah, well, that's right. You can, keep it, you can carry it around. Stop it squishing out. 
but because it's the dimensions are such that the water's contained really well in there, so when you splish it, it doesn't really splash out anyway. Okay, so th- there's not going to be much water in there because it's got a hole. This can contain probably a good three quarters of a pint, so it's sufficient to make um, what four three, cups of three, tea. Four cups of tea, right? Like that, so. Okay, so picture the scene. We're on the river bank. Ricardo is there, and he wants a cup of tea. Right, that's it. So what you do is you get your dry moss. Or uh, invariably in this country, uh, a slightly moist moss. But, you know, if you go out and have a look under trees and things like that, especially I used to live in Devon and that's when I started using a storm kettle and we used to use them when we go fishing off the rocks or, or, off, or by a reservoir somewhere you get like, little bits of gorse and bits of bracken and whatnot, so yeah. dry bits and bobs like that. You pop them into this bottom base, OK, and then you put your, your storm kettle on top of that. So I'm trying to position this in there, and so inside the wood burner. OK, so you put it on there. So and in you effect, you have that, you have that drawer. Then. Yeah, well, I've, I've, I've cunningly filled the lid already with, with dried moss. Right. Uh, well, I haven't lit shredded paper, but it could be <laughs> with dried moss. <laughs> OK. All right. And then I'm quite simply going to uh, light the thing, and then I'm hoping that there's sufficient drawer underneath the chimney. And there you go, and off it goes, like that. You see how it draws the flames through? Oh, right. So it's just like lighting a little miniature wood burner, really. And I put a few logs on the top of it, what you do, you can see all the flames and the smoke coming out of the top of the storm kettle. Yeah. Yeah, and what you do to feed the fire is you just drop your sticks on oh. the top like that. So it works a treat. Oh, yeah. Very straightforward. And there's a few other little bits and pieces that you've got in your fireplace here. And I just drop those in like that. And that's going to work, is it? <clears throat> and that'll boil the water. We'll, we'll light it when we've got it going there, so... So do you fill that chimney up then? Is that the idea? You don't fill it up. You just put sufficient twigs and dried stuff in there to make sure the fire keeps going. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's going. Oh, that's easy then. Yes, piece of cake. a complete doddle. And then you just wait for it to boil. If you want to try a storm kettle, I can vouch for it. It's easy. All those worries that my brother Billy had about gas fires have all gone from my mind. We're going camping this week. And we're taking a storm kettle. So the answer is, is to put the water in the water jacket, not down the chimney. That's yeah, the no, principle. That's, that chimney, is the key. Chimney, <laughs> not where you want it at all. There you go. So that's uh, burning quite nicely now, drawing okay. through there. Well, we'll have a cup of tea in a minute. Yeah, we should. Brilliant. OK. Phil, tell us about Hereford Archaeological Society. Well, what happened was that I had an email from Tim Hovard who had approached the duchy, who are our landlords, to say that they had overflown the farm and this is one of their favourite means of finding archaeological potential to take aerial photographs of the crops, particularly about now or perhaps a little bit earlier than now, just as they're starting to ripen you can see features in the fields that you can't otherwise see. So the crop might be greener or lighter, and you can see straight lines. That's what they're looking for. And so he's got an aerial photo of one of our fields, which has got some very strange patterns in it. And he has identified it potentially as a Bronze Age feature, so 5,000-odd years old. And he wants to excavate part of it to see whether he can prove that fact and see what else he can find. So let's listen to the interview. When does he intend to start digging? And is he going to use a JCB? He is going to use a JCB with care, and he intends to start digging within the next few weeks. Great. 
Well, I'm sat on a rainy Tuesday morning in the Stony Field with Tim Hovard, and you are from the Herefordshire Archaeological... Herefordshire Archaeology. Yeah. Yep. And you have been spying on me, really, effectively, <laughs> haven't you? <laughs> just just explain why, why you're here, Tim. We've been spying on you in a nice way. Uh, what we've been doing over the last six years is a, a series of, or a campaign of aerial photography across the county looking at crop marks in particular and earth marks at different times of the year to try and record the county's heritage. What we try and do when we get the opportunity is follow up the recording by aerial photographs of actually doing some further investigation. Here in Stonyfield we appear to have found part of a large enclosure with a ditch, an interrupted ditch, it has at least one entrance. And uh, what we'd dearly like to do is to do a small-scale excavation over the entrance to try and find out how old it is and what it was used for. What you're suggesting is that this feature could be several thousand years old, depending on what you're actually looking at. And it also suggests that this land has been occupied and farmed in some manner of means for a lot longer than I might have imagined it. Yes, from the, the scale and the shape of the earthwork, what we're, we're guessing, and it is a guess at the moment, is that, that it may have originated in the Neolithic or Early Bronze Age, and it may well have lasted for four, five, six hundred years, and been an enclosure or a place for people to come and undertake certain religious rites. It's very close to the mere, close to water, which was, may have been very significant in those days. Um, so it wasn't a, a village or a farm, perhaps, but certainly the land around it would have been cleared and there would have been farms and fields in close proximity. You've got to really look at this huge amount of time I'm talking about over the last sort of 5,000 years and put it in context to say that the population has risen and declined two or three times since the Neolithic. We were talking about this just now and if we take as the benchmark the population of Herefordshire today is about 160,000 and just run through the, the highlights going back to sort of 5,000 years ago, how the population levels were? Well, the latest thinking, for Herefordshire at least, is that the population is in general far higher than we've given it credit for in the past. And there appear to be three peaks. We're on one at the moment, as you say, around 160,000. The sort of first peak back from that would have been in around about the, the first half of the 1300s, so 1300 to 1320, when we're looking at somewhere around probably between 80 and 100,000 people living in Herefordshire. Which is far more than I would ever It is, ever it is, and it's far more than most, certainly um, people like historical geographers would have given credit for. When they look at the old maps of Herefordshire, they assume that uh, we have quite a diffuse and, and unnucleated uh, settlement pattern. But that's because we suffered so heavily during the, the middle of the 1300s, uh, culminating in the plague, when the population declined so drastically and then didn't really recover. I mean, the next time it reached 100,000 was in the uh, 1891 census. Mm. So we have a huge number of literally completely deserted villages, large villages and market towns that are now small villages or single farms. Mm. And you just don't see the evidence for a nucleated population which would be part of the, the Midland Field pattern for the whole of the medieval period elsewhere. I mean, not far from here, the village of Grosmont is a, a classic example of a, what is now quite a small village that was yeah. quite an important town. Oh, indeed, yes, yes. Kilpeck is another classic, mm. not too far away. That was a market town. It had a market charter, it had a fair charter, mm. and people used to go there on a weekly basis to market, uh, so just as though they did in Kington 
Lempster, Hereford, for example. If your suspicions are right and you're looking at, at something that's around Bronze Age, what would the population of Herefordshire have been at sort of about that point? We're less clear. Certainly it reached its first real peak, probably in the late Bronze Age, early to mid-Iron Age. And we're looking at sort of, I don't know, 50,000-ish people, let's say, perhaps a few more. But, I mean, that, that is a staggering it number is, of people, but, uh, given you know our perceptions of how life was in those days. I mean, it, it yeah. suggests that there must have been much more pressure on providing food for these Indeed. people. And you commented, actually, that a lot of what we see as woodland now was actually cultivated in times gone by and that obviously woodland that's considered ancient now sort of six seven eight hundred years old in the preceding three or four thousand years might have looked completely different oh yes i mean you know shakespeare did get it right in macbeth the woods do move <laughs> um, um, not quite as rapidly as he suggests but woodland a lot of woodland is planned it's not natural woodland and not natural in the pure sense of the word it is planned it is grown as a crop and is used as a form of industry. It is just like farming. And your crop changes every few years with woodland. Your size, your shape of woodland changes. When the population pressure grows to produce food rather than timber, your woods shrink or they move to um, more marginal areas. When the population decreases and the pressure is less, your woods move back again. Well, an interesting simile towards what the problems we've got today with energy versus food and population. You know, there's nothing new in this there's world. There's nothing there? new in this world, I'm afraid. It's all about economics and money. Nothing has changed. It's really what the requirements are for the time and how you can get by. So the plan is that you're going to, a little bit later on this month, get your floppy hat on and uh, develop your southwestern accent and be proper Bristolian and dig a hole in my field. I shall try my best. (laughs) Uh, The floppy hat I can probably manage. I don't know about the accent. (laughs) Yes, we would like to dig uh, one or perhaps two small holes over parts of this structure. Well, with a bit of luck, we will keep an eye on what you're doing because I'm fascinated as well, and we will report back as to what, if anything, you find other than a few earthworms and bits of plough that I've lost over the years. Well, let's just hope it stops raining. (laughs) Uh, fat chance. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Okay. Um, listen, what I want to know is what are you and Terry up to on the 10th of October 2008? Oh, right. Gosh, 10th of October. It seems like a long time away. It's not, though, is it? It's only just around the corner. Well, we decided a while ago that it might be quite nice to have a do with Terry, really. You know, to get a bunch of folks, invite a load of people together, so have a, have a kind of charity event. Subsequently, we thought it might be quite nice for Terry and I to get together and chat about a great many things. So when I mentioned it to Terry, he thought it would be a fabulous idea. So we've booked the local village hall in Preston on Y. Essentially, it's going to be an evening with Terry and I. I imagine uh, predominantly Terry. <laughs> yeah. I was going to inquire as to what you were going to waffle on about. And, uh, me t- attempting to get a word in edgeways occasionally. But what we'll try and do is open it up and we'll, we're going to have a, a, an evening with the audience, really. So it's a, an audience with Terry and I, in effect. And uh, it's just been an opportunity for people to come along and hear about some of Terry's fantastic adventures, um, but learn a great deal about growing on an allotment. And, of course, um, if I do manage to get a word in edgeways, then uh, 
little bit about uh, gardening for wildlife and, and bits and pieces like that. So a little bit about natural history and things. We've got a couple of little neat things up our sleeves as well, just for entertainment value, which I won't share with you now. But Give um, us a clue. It'll be, uh, well, you know, there might be a little bit of music, uh, oh. a little bit of sing-songs, you know, kind of uh, bits and pieces like that, a bit of, bit of Welsh serenading, I think. Oh, you mean so, Tom Jones? Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, that's right. I'm not sure whether Tom... Oh, he might come along. I think it might just be uh, slightly... My mum's uh, favourite hymn was Welsh. Yeah. And it was called Mithanwy. Oh, right, okay. Shall I sing a bit? No. Da, 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 Mithanwy. Da, 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 da. That's all I can remember. Excellent. Now, your, your skills on the piano are significantly greater than your singing skills. Do you think, Terry, and possibly even you, are going to be ready for the knicker throwing and what have you that may result in yeah. Preston on Why? I mean, uh, you know, yeah. it's a dangerous place, Preston, London. Yeah, a bit of knicker throwing. I'm, I'm always, uh, I'm always available for um, some, to catch a few knickers. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's absolutely fine. Listen, oh, what I want to know is how do you plant rowan? What, what do you plant rowan in? What soil condition suits the rowan best? Moist, acidic, alkaline. What is it, or is it that it's native so it can stand the jolly lot? Mm. <laughs> Rowan is really versatile. You know, it's you, you tend to find it on and in upland acidic areas. But well, I've, isn't it I've, mountain I've, ash? I've, um, My dad that's, gave that's me exactly one, and right. it was mountain. Yeah, mountain ash, yeah. But I've planted it at home, and it's doing really well. I planted sort of quite a few ruins at home around the uh, around the ponds that Billy dug, and they're doing really well down there. And that's pretty alkaline soil, so they, they are versatile. We were growing um, sorbus here in the nursery in Blakemere, quite okay. happily, and right. that would have been on a fairly neutral pH, uh, neutral to slightly acid pH, yeah. potash hungry, medium loam. No Any good for wildlife, Rich? Yeah, Rowan? it's a brilliant tree. Yeah, you tend to find that berries get stripped quite quickly, you know, very fairly early on because they are tasty. I mean, there are a few different cultivars now, but by and large, certainly the native species, yeah, the berries are tasty and birds will eat those, uh, often in preference to, to many other things. So you'll find that the berries will be kind of ripening up around about sort of August time, you know, and you see them ripe one day and they're gone the next. Blackbirds, thrushes, love them. Just before we go to the Monty cast, Rich, have you been watching the BBC mega-budget TV special that is all about... Guyana, where you pop there as frugal fish born with your little recorder and did some of the best interviews, Megan, that we <laughs> ever, ever had. That was good, Fishy wasn't it? fish yeah, born. Yeah, it was, I tell you what, brought memories flooding back. Uh, I should say, uh, the Kyoto Falls, my mate and I, you know, you can imagine, because there's no, tour- no tourists go there, you know, it's, not, it's just not a tourist. I mean, Georgetown itself is not, not a safe place to go. So to start, very few people go to Georgetown, let alone venture into the interior. So in uh, Kyoto Falls, I remember, I saw that first shot, and I swam above those, those waterfalls, about three metres above the waterfall. I remember they were egging each other on to see who could get closest to the edge. Yeah. And the guy that took us there, he said, just bear in mind, lads, that that's a thousand metres. Over the edge. That would have been a flush. I said, "Yeah, no, okay, yeah, that sort of came." <laughs> it just made us realise that, uh, and it's kind of, you know, it obviously gets quite, 
quick towards the edge. <laughs> really rich. Yeah, yeah, but it's fantastic. But I should also say that, uh, that my friend did say that he was going to take his girlfriend back to ask her to, to marry him, but I don't, I don't think he has. So, but, uh, but yeah, that was, but it's amazing. That, if um, she says no, he can just drop over the edge. What number? What number? That, I mean, there was a while ago. It, was, it would have been towards the end of last year, wouldn't it, I guess, the, uh, the, the Guyana recordings that I, I managed to string together. Yes, and they don't swear as much on the BBC, though, <laughs> no, do they? No, Michael did a lot of editing there. Well, of course, I was in fishing mode, so every other word was, <laughs> hey, you know, was expletive of sorts. So. Oh, yep, there's a big one on there. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that was, a, that was fantastic. I'm Are gonna, you boys together in the jungle, eh, Rich? Yeah, that's right, that's right. It is a most amazing place, and uh, I think the idea of the, the BBC, ultimately, what they'd like to do, because lots of people have gone there and done various things, and uh, I mean, the reason, I, one of the things I, the first time I heard about Guyana was uh, on with Radio 4, you know, and that was, as I managed to get in touch with the producer of a yeah, show on Radio 4. Yeah, I remember you saying um, that. Uh, piranhas and, and parrots and... A guy called Hugh Cordy, who co-produced the Blue Planet. He's a lovely bloke. He works down in the Natural History Unit down at Bristol, BBC. And, of course, they recognise that this place, certainly up above the falls, it is a pristine, most amazing place. No one goes there. You know, you've got jaguars and jaguars. You, know, they, you can get a friend of mine, or a chap I know, that's been has like photographs of Jaguar on rocks and he's been three metres away from them and they've been out there basking in the sun. So and obviously they'd like to give it, get it some sort of protected status because it's probably one of the few rainforests that isn't being destroyed systematically. I think the government are trying to cut down all the trees as fast as they can. <laughs> but obviously as far as the BBC is concerned is to raise awareness about the significance of this place which is why they put together this series of three shows which are on 8 o'clock on a Wednesday evening. What's um, it called? Lost Land of the Jaguar. You can get that on iPlayer then. Should be on iPlayer, yeah. Uh, uh, Michael reliably informs me that the episode Biggest Fish Ever Caught is uh, on 112. And as far as I'm aware, I'm still the person that's probably caught one of the biggest freshwater fish on Rodden Line ever. And as I understand it, you're the person that has the biggest bite on your buttock. Ever. <laughs> From then. <laughs> I'll tell you what we should do, actually, what we could oh, do. Oh, let's is look that, at it. Is that photo, you know, I can put it on, I'll give it to Karen to put on the blog. Of your buttock? Of my back. Oh. <laughs> oh right. I'm burying my, do. I'm not going to bear my ass for all. <laughs> I'm not sober anyway, I've done it several times under the influence, obviously. But <laughs> not with me. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, here we are. We've got an apology coming up, but just before then, our reviews are going so well on the website. Here's one for you. I like the fact they're not just, oh, I love the product. Not that people speak like that. But this one <laughs> says, uh, this is uh, <laughs> Teeny Scott Barber, and she writes five stars, and this is about Farmer Phil's Bukashi. It's also really good for keeping chicken poo smells away. We put a sprinkling on the base of our egglue dropping tray. Mind you, they like to eat it too. Now, isn't that value? That's the sort of review that's useful to people, isn't it? It is. Not just, yeah, I like the colour. <laughs> well, it's quite nice to have that sort of feedback. Of course, well. thank you very much for all that. give us an insight into what colours sell well. <laughs> quite right, Richard. So we, we don't want to be too... Uh, no, too, definitely not. Too, too, too oh, I'm just it. grateful expression for... that Megan's obviously quite fond of disparaging <laughs> to people who come up with simple, relatively simple comments. Certainly not, but chicken poop is close to my heart. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> right, a serious apology now. You know, like the BBC have to issue statements and say, we've had complaints in and unfortunately we've had to issue this statement. Well, here's ours. <laughs> I did a lovely interview with Emma Chanky, age 15, and her pigs have now featured on Radio 4 just yesterday. Fabulous. Yes. Oh, well done. And Emma. they're going to be offering courses next year on serious sausage making and all sorts. Excellent. So that's really good. But anyway, apparently, a five foot and half an inch enthusiastic person smiling a lot and quite loud approached the Chankies with a microphone, right. smiling sweetly, and said, What about the RSPCA Freedom Food? and quizzed her in quite an aggressive fashion. I don't know who that could be. Five uh, foot and half an inch, grinning. You. Well, yes. That, that's half an inch, that's important to you <laughs> yes, as well. Yes, it is. Because <laughs> otherwise people would say, oh, five foot. Yes, it's five foot <laughs> She's half only five an foot. inch. I am not. She is actually five foot and half an inch. I am. <laughs> and so anyway, apparently um, Emma was put under a little bit too much pressure and actually said some little tiny porky pies about the RSPCA. So I'm very, very sorry, RSPCA. But I do blame you completely because by calling your um, standard freedom food, it would indicate, it would kind of hint that those animals are free. And that simply isn't the case. But they have got a standard and there is 30 pages of this standard that's available on the RSPCA website. So to get complete accurate information please do go there. I'll read out the Chanka's email that explains more next week, but we do apologise for any misunderstanding. RSPCA Freedom Food does improve indoor pig standards. It does mean that some pigs can be outdoors, but it doesn't mean that you need a wallow. So there was a bit of a conflict in report. Okay. It's a completely Emma's fault. It wasn't the five-foot half an inch person no. who was enthusiastic at all right. it was emma who's 15 right. <laughs> not the important thing <laughs> sorry, to come emma. out of to and come out of RSPCA. that of course is the benefit of actually verifying where your food comes from so whatever the standards that are applied to it if you actually can either via the internet or actually go and see emma's pigs or whoever's pigs it is you're eating you can have your own standards. You don't have to worry about the RSPCA standard or anyone else's. If you go and have a look and it's acceptable to you, then that is the Richard Fishbourne standard of pig production, and that's fine. Which you can do, of course, through your butcher. Lots mm. of butchers actually go and see it for you, don't they? Absolutely. And I think it, it's all the more important, and it just justifies the fact that by having confusion over names and different standards with subtle this and that and all the rest of it, it's your standard that counts. You're eating the food. It, the onus is on you to f- make some effort to find out where it comes from and how it was produced. And when you've done that, if it's acceptable, that's fine. Don't need any other standards. Well, yeah, I it's, can... it's true to a degree, certainly. I mean, a certain standard, but there, there has to be some sort of benchmark, doesn't there, by and large. And certainly for commercially produced products, if people are able to recognise that a certain standard has been set in the production of that food, then they're able to assume that it's, it is either ethically grown or organically grown or both. And so but on if and so it's forth. called freedom food, it yeah. implies freedom. If you want to see how Emma's pigs are kept then you can go to emmaspigs.blogspot.com mm. and you can email her and you That's can good. ask her. And I can vouch for the sausages in our freezer. So I doesn't get attached to a little piggies then? Feel a little She's bit attached of... to the breeding stock, I think. Right. 
but not to the offspring. Okay. Because uh, they taste too good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, let's share with you the latest Montecast because he's been in the studio recording the latest Montecast, a weekly tale of wiggliness. Montecast, a weekly fact on wiggliness. Ricardo has installed a large wormery at the river cottage to recycle their food waste. Another Montecast, a weekly fact on wiggliness. Next week. Thanks, Monty. That was great. <laughs> well, that's it, guys. Away off to do our assorted bits and bobs. What are you going to do, Phil? Contemplate the rain and try and go combining at some point, I think. Mm, what's the forecast? Better for tomorrow, but in general, not good. Right, and what are you going to do? Well... Oh, five foot one? <laughs> five foot and half an inch. Let me see. Today, we were due to have a new storeman, but he hasn't turned up. So, behind the scenes at Wiggly Wigglers, there's going to be a bit of frantic fun. Uh, we have a few issues with distribution, a few system issues, which seems to be a regular occurrence... If anyone has got a great computer system that they think is perfect for Wiggly Wiggler's mail order company, do let us know. I think you ought to have a card index myself. There's nothing wrong with those. <laughs> no, no. And Ricardo, what are you off to do? I'm off to do all sorts of things. I'm off to chase up um, orders that should have been uh, sent out to people, chase up suppliers. Suppliers for things that they <laughs> promised us. Suppliers with and it's holiday season. Uh, so it's a various gone. assortment of <laughs> bastard sorting. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you shouldn't have said that. <laughs> so anyway, it's bye from me and me. It's bye from me. In the wood burner, weren't the smoke got the wood burner? I did look at that earlier and thought, mm, well, maybe. I could light it, actually, I could light it in here. Yeah. Oh. I'll light it in here. There you are. Is that any good, oh, there's, an, there's a dead owl in your fireplace. Oh. <laughs> Fell down the chimney and died. It's been, it's almost this dry, is actually. There's a dead owl in our fireplace! <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Poor wall. Oh, oh no! It's, oh, it's been God. here so long that it's dried. It's, Michael! Uh, it's a petrified... <laughs> petrified owl. <laughs> In fact, Philip, you don't, have to, you don't have to pay a taxi dermis to do that because that is now, quite literally... Oh, no! I'm going to have to go now. <laughs> a sooty ornament. That's really sad. That it's thing. dried itself in that... Michael, it must have been in there for months. Summer. People pay good money for stuffed owls. <laughs> I don't know why I just getting in such a fret over it. There can't like, be a dead owl in the flipping they like fire. St- they like stuffed birds. <laughs> Poor old Do you want to- <laughs>